What does the work we do daily have to do with our salvation? How can our work shape us as individuals, as Christians, and as people? Today we'll discuss those questions and more with Dr. Deborah Savage, Professor of Theology and Philosophy at St. Paul's Seminary School of Divinity and Director of the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture at the University of St. Thomas, both in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, today we'll be talking about human work and uh, salvation. And in our studios, we're joined by our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University. And uh, also Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan. And we're so pleased to welcome back Dr. Deborah Savage, um, Dr. Savage is the director of the Masters in Pastoral Ministry program at the St. Paul Seminary School for Divinity and the director of the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture at the University of St. Thomas, both of those in St. Paul, Minnesota. You have a, a doctorate from Marquette University uh, in theology and, um, and philosophy, I believe. Um, your dissertation, uh, which is very germane to our subject today, published in 2008, was The Subjective Dimension of Human Work, The Conversion of the Acting Person in the Thought of Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, and uh, Bernard Lonergan. Uh, Lonergan. Um, but prior to your, your theological uh, and philosophical studies, Dr. Savage worked for 25 years in the business and manufacturing sectors, work that included managing her own consulting and training firms, specializing in strategic quality planning, as well as cross-functional management and the process management. I mean, there's a lot there, yeah. um, which is really exciting, but you're also a member of the Board of Trustees here at Franciscan University, which has been a joy. So, so welcome back to the program. Thank you. Gosh, Thank you very much. You've had more accomplishments than Aristotle. <laughs> That's very impressive. No. Well, it, 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 is, it, is, it is beautiful that you both have the theological and philosophical study, uh, but you also have 25 years. Um, so let's talk about how, you know, because your, your dissertation sounds like more of a, a life's work in some ways than just a, uh, an interesting topic for you. So if you could share a little bit more on that. Well, I'll try to make it quick. Um, <laughs> It, uh, I, I put myself through college at working as a factory operator in the semiconductor industry in California. Wow. So my, my undergraduate is actually in business. Okay. okay? And um, <clears throat> I thought I'd be a lawyer, and then I figured out that law wasn't interested in the truth, although that, that's what someone told me. <laughs> so I said, well, if that's the case, I'll implode, so I won't be able to do that. So I just stayed in manufacturing, and I made my way up the organizational chain, if you will, uh, eventually getting higher and higher degrees of responsibility. Ended up at Honeywell. I worked at a lot of different places. But <clears throat> one of the things that I began to uh, 
explore and actually became an expert in, if you will, was something called quality management. Right. And some of your listeners may, your viewers, may recall that in the 70s and 80s, the Japanese were basically beating the pants off of us in yeah. the economic uh, sphere. Um, one of the reasons that Toyota is the single largest manufacturer of cars in the world is because they knew how to use these methodologies mm. that come under the rubric of quality management. And they're actually methods that were invented by an American, but he couldn't get American enterprise interested in it. it. Yeah. So he went yeah. to Japan and he helped them. And <clears throat> in the course of gaining my expertise in that area, that was what my consulting firm was devoted to, really. Okay. Um, <clears throat> was uh, what I learned was the Japanese had succeeded at those methodologies to some extent because of the spiritual traditions that undergird their culture. Hmm. In particular, Confucian virtue ethics. There are even management papers written about this, qualitative studies that have been done that draw a causal connection between the two. Hmm. And, I, and I thought to myself, I had certain experiences as a manager um, I was very successful, not a brag. It was just, <laughs> you know, uh, I could talk about that if you want. But I know the reasons why I was successful had a lot to do with what I later understood to be Catholic social principles. Mm. But um, anyway, so I began to wonder what there was in the Judeo-Christian tradition that should be informing our work behavior in the same way, mm. but somehow wasn't. Yes. Was it missing? Was there some kind of event that happened? Wh why do we go to church on Sunday and work on Monday? And there seems to be this gap. We live yes. these fragmented lives. Whereas in the Confucian virtue system, um, and in Japanese culture, especially at the time, uh, one exists within five fiduciary relationships, and those relationships follow you no matter where you are. Okay. So every person in a, in a Confucian-based culture is tasked with the assignment of becoming what they call a chinsu, a superior person. Hmm. And so I tried to help my clients see that we weren't just competing with techniques. We're competing with a whole nation of people who at every level of the economic st uh, structure, of the, every level in the culture, no matter where you are, from a shoe shiner to a garbage collector, to the CEO of a company, is their job is to become a superior person. And it was difficult to get my clients to understand that it wasn't just going to be the good use of statistics that was going to allow us to compete with them. And it was a question that just would not leave me in peace. I just had to find out what happened, mm. what was missing, or how could we bring to bear on our work this same understanding, right, or some, some version of it, our version of it. And so um, one, I, I searched, tried to figure out what to study, <coughs> and eventually someone said to me, just go get a master's in theology, see what happens. And so I did that, and then when I finished my master's degree, I, I said, how could that be? I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to go on and finish. And then that's when I especially encountered, I it was a John Paul II groupie, of course, at the time, but yeah. I encountered his work. And so my dissertation is really about an encyclical that he wrote on human work. And um, I, I am still very interested in what he refers to as 
the acting person, but the conversion of the acting person for me has to do with can we be converted? Do we come closer to God in the work that we do? Mm, mm. And so this is the culmination both of, of your, your career, your professional life had, had started some of these questions, but then yeah. you continued yeah. on in that, in that research, in that search for truth. Yeah, it's, uh, I had empirical questions. Yeah. And to be honest, I thought I'd end up teaching business ethics. Mm. And then God had a different plan, and uh, here I am. But, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That, uh, that trope uh, or a category, superior person, which permeates Japanese uh, culture, the mm. work ethic, yeah. uh, that's a moral category, right? Absolutely. They're not talking about uh, technological perfection oh, no, no, no. or physical prowess or mastery of, of the no, market. No, it's not Nietzschean in ethical. any way. No, that's right. It's, uh, it's an absolutely beautiful yeah. uh, 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 notion. Uh, the virtues that they practice are all ordered toward that. And what, what one knows about the Japanese culture, at least at the time, things have changed a little as yeah. Western materialism has encroached on their vision. But uh, um, if you encountered someone who was very humble and unassuming, you might want to watch out because it could be the CEO. Is that right? The higher up you go in a Japanese firm, the more humble you become. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, this Confucian virtue ethic, mm -hmm. rooted in, as you said, five fiduciary relationships, is also a reflection of a moral order that is rooted in nature. You know, the family especially. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons why Japan is sort of losing touch with this tradition is because of the, the shrinking families, Absolutely. among other things yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. As you said, materialism and consumerism. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend who uh, did his doctorate on the Confucian virtue ethic rooted in family relations, yes, especially yeah. filial piety, Absolutely. parent child, and how that is extended out. Ancestors. And, yeah, ancestors. Yeah. I mean, oh, yes. in a certain sense, ancestral veneration, which is wrong, but you're sort of erring in the right direction yeah. compared <laughs> to where we're going, you yeah. know. Yeah. But it was a correlation with Hans Urs von Balthasar and his moral theology. Oh, and it was a fascinating convergence to show, as you see, too, that the Catholic tradition is really rooted in a family vision oh, of sure. relatedness. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, there's something in the natural social order um, yeah. that isn't just right. It's also efficient yeah. and productive. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we live in a society where hierarchy is, is skewed, frowned upon, you know, and egalitarianism prevails, and so you want to give credit to everybody. But that virtue of humility especially, mm -hmm. where you're seeking to be a superior person, but you're always looking up to people who you depend upon, who you draw yeah. from, and so there's yeah. nothing to brag about. It's, mm. it's a remarkable Remarkable treasure. Is. It absolutely is. And yet, you know what I discovered, and I, and I actually have given presentations to design engineering managers, vice presidents of manufacturing companies about this, where I show them Confucian, the, the structure of Confucian virtue ethics, and then I show them the corollaries between that, or the parallels between that and, let's say, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics or the virtues well, tradition itself. A lot of overlap. And oh my gosh, it's the yeah. same. Mm -hmm. It's it's the same. I mean, frankly, Confucius lived around the same time that Aristotle did. He has a notion of the golden mean. Uh, it, there's all sorts of uh, yeah, connections, and so it's very possible to put it in language that is um, 
familiar to us, it's grounded in our own traditions. And of course, the Christian tradition has taken that, yeah. the virtues tradition, much further. So um, what was so interesting about this investigation was the realization it had been there all along. Mm. this understanding. Right. But it was a historical event, really. It had to do with the Reformation. Yeah. It had to do with the modern project. Mm -hmm. It had to do with, um, in specifically, let's say, John Locke's letter of toleration, where there was this agreement in England that we would no longer speak about our faith in public because it was just too difficult, right? Yeah. There were just too many wars started yeah, as a result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just not talk about it anymore. So in the West, faith became a private matter. Right. right, and that gap began to grow then. Absolutely, yeah. And, and then an increasing isolation of the individual from the larger unit, the, 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 right. the family, the right. society, what right. Burke calls uh, uh, the little platoon to which mm -hmm. we organically yeah. belong. Right. And, and this, this chord, uh, I, I call it a chord of continuity between nature and grace, between Japan and, and uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic, this notion of ancestral worship, yeah. that, that's an abuse of something really very good. Right. Yeah. Chesterton calls yeah. it the democracy of the dead. We take into account <laughs> yes, right. the votes of those who are dead. Yes. because we stand on their shoulders. And we find that in the Catholic notion of the, the mystical body, yes, the, communion the communion of saints. Of saints. Yes. We don't want to lose touch no, with I that. No, I think the truth is that, um, in general, this is a generalization, but folks in the West tend to have forgotten completely about this truly present, invisible reality. We're so taken by empiricism and positivism and uh, empirical evidence and so on that we have... Um, We've denied or ignored or forgotten completely about the fact that we live in this universe that's populated by, by pretty much everyone who's ever lived. <laughs> and so I'm very aware, uh, all the, well, not all the time that would be lying, but as, as often as I can be, of the fact that I am, I am being, my actions are witnessed right, right. by people that um, are still praying for me, yeah. still hoping for me. And... Um, we have a responsibility to our families, our lineage, our future, to behave in ways that are consistent with what we But, but isn't that completely contrary oh. to the prevailing model? Oh my God, uh, yeah. The yeah. cheese stands alone. The, uh, I'm the protagonist right. of, of my destiny. Yeah, the individualism that characterizes American culture, Western culture in particular, has really been devastating in many ways for these. So, so how would you succinctly or, or shortly then say, what's the Christian understanding? You know, we've got Conf Confucius, we've got the, yeah. the modern secular understanding. Yeah. What would be the, the Christian uh, understanding? Yeah, well, the, probably the easiest way to jump in is to uh, consider, uh, first of all, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. And the first act of God is really to create. Yeah. Mm. So if we're made in the image of a God who creates, then that has certain implications. Right. In fact, Pope Benedict gave this incredible talk to the ministries of culture in Europe not that long ago, in which he pointed out that a European prosperity grew out of this recognition, um, a, a religious ins insight in, into that very thing that the prosperity that the Europeans enjoyed for so many centuries can be traced 
to the recognition that man's job is to reflect that creative activity mm. in his own right. life. So that's yeah, we one. Cooperate with we God. cooperate with extending God the in the work that of we do. His hands. Yes, yeah. extending the work of his hands. Yeah. Creation is not over. We're still right. we're responsible right. for it. Yeah. In fact, it's very clear in Genesis 1, 27, 28, that we're given that task, both man and woman. Now, the John Paul's encyclical, un incredibly insightful on this, just radical, of course. He's a radical thinker, truly. And he points out, and I usually ask this as a trick question of my students, uh, did the call to work, which is be fruitful and multiply, etc., yeah. uh, did that come before or after the fall? Yeah. And of course, it comes before. Right. Everyone gets that. But the big question is, so what? Well, what John Paul points out is that the so what is that this reveals that work is a fundamental yeah. dimension of human existence yeah. because the call to work comes when we're still in the state of nature. It's an aspect of human life. Yeah. And so I tell my students, if you're expecting when you get to heaven to be sitting around on <laughs> lawn chairs, right. drinking your favorite adult beverage, you'll have to think again. That's <laughs> just not it. Yeah. So I want you to yeah. pick this up on the other yeah, side. So Stay with us. I think through much of my professional life, I thought that my work was separate from my spiritual life, but that's not the case. The tasks that I perform and the people I meet are invitations to meet God. It makes me think of the quote of St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, who says that our work is the very hinge in which our sanctity turns. When God created you, He made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about human work and the picture of salvation with Dr. Deborah Savage, the author, business leader, uh, seminary professor. <laughs> um, so we, we, you began to unpack a little bit about the Christian understanding of yeah. work, mm -hmm. and you, you went back to the garden right. and, uh, and the question of whether, whether it was be fruitful and multiply was before or after. Yeah. Um, and knowing that it was before, and the, and the so what? Maybe you could yeah. pick up from there a little well, bit. Well, what really intrigued me the most, perhaps, about John Paul's insights in that encyclical was his claim that an, the proper understanding of human work is the key, the essential key to the social question. Now, the social question, that's a big question. We've been asking that since time began. How do we live in peace secured by justice in community? Uh, and as your uh, viewers probably know the church's so social teachings, a vast treasury of reflection on this question. And John Paul, in this encyclical, says, it's work that's the key to it. 
To all of it. To all of it. Yeah. That unless you have a proper understanding of human work, we'll never realize the social vision of the church. Mm. And, a, and the social vision of the church is a beautiful thing. There's no way anyone would ever disagree with it. Right. All kinds of people refer a various uh, traditions and and uh, ways of thought to the to that tradition. So um, that really interested me. If work is the key to the social question, it seems like we should understand why he would make that claim. Yeah. And it turns out that it's driven by an anthropological understanding of the human person okay. and the role that work plays in a life fully lived. Mm. So one thing uh, I better mention too though is that for him and for me, work is not just something you do for pay. Yeah. 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 Work is any activity that we think of as work, he says. It's helpful to think of it in, in physics. Work is any expenditure of ener energy in an in a intentional particular yeah. direction. And, and it's, it's important to insist that because work antedates the fall, it's yeah. not strictly punitive. It's not a punishment. Absolutely, no. God isn't sticking it to us. No, no. Uh, we violated some code. No, absolutely. Nor was it effortless. You know, when you look yeah, at right. subdue yeah. in yeah. Hebrew, you recognize that it, it is quite an effort yeah. uh, to subjugate. Right. Uh, the toilsome frustration that comes after the fall yeah. is in stark contrast to the hard work that would be efficient and productive before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Mm. That's right. Mm. Yeah, I guess God could knock out a world in six days without breaking a sweat. It was <laughs> effortless. But, yeah. but Adam, uh, you know, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, cultivate the garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's work. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And it's good. Yeah. It's freeing, enriching. Yeah. Yes, well, John Paul claims, and it's very clear, that we, it, we actually become who we're meant to be through the work that we do. He says, animals don't work. They have lots of activity. Those bees are very busy, so are the ants, but they're not strictly, what they're doing is not strictly work. Mm. Only the human being works, he says, and in so doing, um, manifests his humanity. And, and it has a lot to do with his human agency. Uh, his, his potencies are realized through his activities in working. I'll just give you one small example. Um, my, I have a daughter, and I, uh, when she was about three years old, her first task was to empty the knife and fork tray. <laughs> and that, what John Paul would say is that that act is an act of self-transcendence because I'm, I'm reaching beyond a boundary that's already present and expanding myself. Every time we try some new skill or learn something new, we are, in fact, engaged in the act of, act of self-transcendence. Yeah. So when I go beyond myself to make a commitment, either in the home or in the workplace or the public square, that could be seen as an act of self-transcendence when it is, he says, every decision we make is made on the way to the good yeah. or not. Yeah. And so we're all, for John Paul II, we're never outside of that moral context. Yeah. You know, just like in the Confucian tradition, well, we're always within that, that it. conception, I think, represents a really decisive break with what otherwise we call the wisdom of antiquity. The Greeks and the Romans, mm. they regarded uh, manual that's labor right. as servile. Yes. This is fit only for someone who's not quite human. No, that's but right. But in the monastic tradition, manual labor is a constitutive feature of, right. uh, of sanctification. No, that's and right. that's the great insight of Obus Dei. Bloom where you're planted. That's you're a right. Man, you yeah. can still be a saint. Yes. That's right. That's right. There, there's an essential element, though, that has to be added for balance, and that is 
aura at Labora. Yes. Yeah. Prayer and work. Yes. Because work is not an end in itself. No. It is how we image God. But work is ordered to worship. What we do on the right. six days of labor is ordered to the Sabbath Absolutely. and the old. Right. And, and so labor, you know, the fruit of the labor is offered in the liturgy. Uh, the work is consecrated through worship so that we recognize something that Confucian virtue ethics doesn't see, and that is the transcendence, the teleology, the fact that we were made for something more than this, but nothing less. No, that's right. That this is exactly how we image God, but this is how we enter into communion with God. And I think that is precisely what is missing and why people are going to look at work and say, oh, that's demeaning. Oh, no, that's elevating. If you consecrate it in worship, and sacrifice especially, then suddenly you enter into communion with the Almighty. So this is one of the things that I've pushed a little further on. Then um, uh, Let me preface this by pointing out that Confucius's innovation was to uh, show or argue that prior to Confucius, only the aristocracy could become superior persons. And he said, no, that's not right. Every, anyone at any level can become a superior person. And this seems to parallel in a certain way the, our own insight that vocation belongs to everyone. We call, we're all called. Yes. Um, but uh, what, I, what I've come to see is that, in fact, uh, and John Paul mentions this, I should point it out that way, he says that uh, work actually enters into the salvation process on a par with the other particularly important components of its texture, he says. Mm. And um, there is absolutely a connection between work and the Eucharist. There's two rhythms to life, it's said. Joseph Pieper has written on this, work and leisure. There's only two rhythms. There's work and there's leisure. And they have to be integrated. They have to feed each other. John Paul is very insightful in his encyclical on the Sabbath. He says they're God us rested every day. He said, every day it is good. Yep. And then on the final day, of course, he, he rested. So we have to mirror that as well. But if you think about the Eucharist, and then I'll stop. <laughs> um, when the priest says uh, at the offertory, we have these gifts to offer you, which human hands have made. Yeah. Yeah. It is really a reference to the work that we do and what's offered to God, what our part of the sacrifice is, is that act. And it's not just the objective results of work that are offered. It's what John Paul refers to as the subjective dimension. My becoming, through the work that I do, either in the home or in the workplace, uh, every week, every day, that is what I offer to you, God, in the, the sacrifices that I've made yeah. in, in trying to do a job well, right. out yeah. of love for my family or those that I serve, right. or with this vision of my final end in mind. That's my sacrifice. So um, you can see right away this, that every moment is possibly a Eucharistic. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's important, yeah. I, I think, to observe <coughs> the distinctions uh, and peeper at the heart of his analysis is the distinction between work and leisure. Absolutely. And his insistence that really it is leisure that is generative of mm. culture, That's correct. not work. I mean, yes. the psalmist reminds us of that. Be still and know that I am your God. Yeah. Don't work as though you were God. 
Right. Yeah. And leisure yeah. is more than just an afternoon in the backyard. Right. Leisure is the basis of culture because leisure affords us the opportunity for what he calls the cult worship again. Yes. You know, and right. it's important to recognize that Jesus is our Savior and King. But he was a carpenter, too. I mean, yes. he yes. worked with wood before he saved us through the wood yeah. of the cross. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think the beauty of, of the, the beautiful analogy of the Eucharist, not the analogy, but the reality of the Eucharist is that, that God has made that invitation to us, that we can participate, that, that even the work of our hands, the that stuff of this the work earth, of hands, yes. can be brought. Yeah, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, when, before we had those little hosts that you could just go by yeah, yeah. or go to the local wherever and get the wine, people would bring their gifts to the back of the church. And those would be, uh, those would be what would be sacrificed at the mass. And I think we've lost touch with that. Now, yes. our the results of our work go up the middle, you know, go up the aisle in the basket. But, but we need to actually absolutely have to recover this sense of the sacredness of work. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you, you talked about um, how you even uncover really the, your vocation, your calling. You find out your purpose and your plan. And the, and, mm -hmm. and and through this work, you're not only offering, mm -hmm. you're not only understanding really who you are. You're also stepping into God's divine plan. And it's not simply your career. No. It's it's work as a larger term, uh, which is really beautiful. That's right. Well. The, there's a question about vocation, right? What is it? And, um, or what's the difference between job and career and all of that? So one can think of um, those three as a sort of uh, schema. Um, a, a job might be something I do for pay, right. um, something I need to do because I need to support my family. A career is, is as it's described by Robert Bella in Habits of the Heart. He's very insightful on this. A career is usually driven by psychological, a need for psychological affirmation or satisfaction. But a vocation is a call. Mm. And th what's interesting about understanding this is that it's, um, I, can, I can do a job for pay, but, but if my vocation is to support my family, there's a deep connection between those two things. I can uh, pursue a career because I want to become whom I'm meant to be, or I can do it as a mere careerist who only wants power and glory, right. right? So, so much depends on how we understand what our work is for. Um, the vocation of the laity, the church says we find it in the temporal order. That's right. We find it there. Yeah. And the vocation of the laity, in case not everyone got the memo, <laughs> is to transform the right. temporal order. Right. It's right. not to hang around the rectory. And Vatican II uses the term sanctify the temporal order. Yeah. So you're not just sanitizing, cleaning it oh. up, you know, right. but you're really making it holy. Right, yeah. right. Baptizing. Right, and so our work in the temporal order, <clears throat> wherever we are, is always to fulfill the threefold office of Christ, priest, prophet, and king. When I speak the truth in a meeting, as provided I've got it, of course, um, or when I make a sacrifice on my job for the benefit of the company or so that my family can feel secure because I'm doing well at work, whatever. Those sacrifices can be, when understood properly, uh, uh, priestly, that's a participation of the priestly office. When I run a company or when I govern myself so that I behave virtuously at work, 
this is the governing office of Christ. Yeah, but you see, we've lost touch with this, and it, yet it's all right there. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's so much to really unpack in this, just understanding our calling, the dignity of the work, but what it means for our society and our right. world. Yeah. Um, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents uh, for the next segment. In a sense, uh, work is, is a form of poverty, especially if you have to work and you don't have really a choice. And that's because you're dependent uh, every day on being able to get up and go to work, that your health and your ability is maintained. And uh, if you can't do that, you can't work. And so uh, there is a real dependency, and that's a form of poverty. Uh, St. Francis saw uh, poverty as a great gift because he uh, sought to be like Jesus in every way, and this made him totally dependent on the Father the way Jesus was. Each day is an invitation uh, to be obedient to the tasks. You know, oftentimes I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like, uh, you know, responding to that message or that, you know, going to that meeting. Uh, but I think it's in those moments that when we recognize the gift that work is to us, to persevere in those moments, to be obedient, uh, is truly an opportunity to be sanctified. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University here in Steubenville, Ohio. We're recording right now in our studio here at Franciscan University. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment. Our regular panelists are theology professors here at the university. Uh, so uh, we've been talking to Dr. Deborah Savage about human work. And in the last segment, you, you talked about the, the distinctions between vocation and career. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing because I think we get uh, very muddled in our thinking yeah. in the Western world particularly. Yeah. Could you tease that out a little bit more? Yeah, so one thing, one place to start with that is a principle of the natural law. Okay. The natural law, uh, one aspect of it is to uh, uh, recognize that um, we are obligated by the gift of life. We are already in debt when we're conceived, when we're born. Mm. And we're obligated by the gift of life to become that most excellent person that God had in mind when he created us. Mm. This is the source of our vocation. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why we need to eradicate the structures of sin that exist in the world so that every person on the planet can pursue that end. Mm. So our vocation, first of all, springs from that reality that we're in debt to God. We need to honor Him. We need to become mm. who He meant us to be. Um, many times this question of vocation is thought of as sort of a either-or kind of thing, like priests and religious have it, lay people maybe not. Um, but the truth is that we, are, we all have a vocation. Right. We are all called to do that same thing, to become. Or Even before we get a job. Well, <laughs> before we get a job. That everybody, actually, everybody's kind of got a job, even little kids. But, but anyway, so I think of vocation as a nested idea, and our, the, the sort of like concentric circles. So the first circle is the call to be holy. Every person on the planet is called to be holy. That's our first call, our first vocation. And then the second circle, if you will, is the point at which we make a decision about a state in life. I'll be married, perhaps single is a vocation. People are saying that now. 
uh, or the priestly or religious life, right? I make a decision because I'm called here or I'm called there. But what people have to realize is my vocation extends beyond that as well. Once I decide that I'm married or that I'm a priest or a religious sister, then, then there are ad additional potencies that need to be realized in exercising that aspect of my call. For example, priests aren't just priests. They teach at seminaries. They, they go abroad to mission to do mission work, or they're, they're heads Pastor, of their right. pastors. They work in parishes. Yeah. Um, so they exercise these additional potencies in the service of the church. Men and women the same. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to be a father or a mother or to the married state. And then beyond that, I have these other gifts that I'm supposed to exercise. That's right. Wherever I exercise them, that's where my vocation is. Yeah. Parker, Parker Palmer puts it this way. He says, my vocation is where my heart's greatest desire meets the world's greatest need. Right. And that can include the work of a mother in the home. It can include the work of a father in, in the workplace, or a mother in the workplace, for that matter. Yes. There can't be any limitation, really, placed on, on men or women in terms of their responding to that call. And you can argue women might not belong in combat. They certainly don't belong in NFL football. <laughs> so there are some things that certainly are sort of off limits for men or for women, I think. But uh, making a list is a dangerous thing. We just are called, and we have to exercise those gifts in the service of the kingdom. Could, could you uh, argue that uh, vocation is more a function of being, whereas a career, a job, is a function of of doing, mm. although there are yeah. uh, there there are overlapping areas uh, yes. to be sure. Yeah, you know, the expression "wherever you go, there you are." That's a right. And who am I? Well, right. I'm a creature. Yeah. I'm an image uh, right. made in God's own image, yeah. uh, which means I have to try and achieve the perfect likeness uh, unto Christ, and that involves work, mm. doing, Absolutely. not yeah. just being. Yeah, uh, it, we're, we're not quietists. It doesn't happen automatically. Right. You've got right. to make an effort. No, and in this in this case in this so we could go back to something Dr. Han just said about Jesus having been a carpenter. I mean, John Paul speaks about that in his encyclical also, that by, uh, by working in the way that he did, he sanctifies work. And we, we image God is, or Jesus is showing us who God is, what it means to be made in God's image, and Jesus worked. So uh, he wasn't always just sitting on a pillow somewhere praying and, you know, he was actually active and he had work to do and he went about doing it. And that's what we're supposed to do too. Another piece in the puzzle I think that, you know, fits right here. When we think about vocation, when we think about work, when we think about Jesus as a carpenter, you know, it wasn't just a career that he chose. Right. You know, it's a father-son relationship, which yes. created the conditions, the possibility for the apprenticeship, you know, right. and then for him to become a, you know, a master carpenter as well. And I think what that does is it sort of adds the element of relationality, you know, that... Mm, that um, Career is often something that I choose. Mm -hmm. you know, but the very fact that you're speaking of vocation, calling, vocare, yes. you know, it isn't a call that I call myself to. It's right. something I, that you know, I hear right. and respond to. It, it comes from God, but it's not immediate. It's not unmediated. You know, it's like I have two sons in the seminary now. They have that sense of vocation, but it didn't come directly from God to the exclusion of the bishop of the diocese. Right. That's right. You know, or even their and, father. That's right. And so, 
parents, siblings, you know, uh, and also God the Father and the saints as older siblings, you know. It's this relational matrix that I think makes better sense of vocation Mm -hmm. because you're responding to a call, you know, and a career is sort of like an ambition where you're out the best others, you know, whereas a vocation is where you are really fitting in with co-workers within a kind of familial setting. Yeah, I think it's beautiful to think of it as a, um, you know, we do make decisions in our lives, but oftentimes the secular will make a decision for a career where as a a Catholic, we're actually discovering our vocation. We're discovering how we are even personally and uniquely Mm -hmm. made, Mm -hmm. and we are fit for some particular good work in this world. And, you know, it could be that since the primary call is to become a saint, becoming a bishop might be an impediment. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I love how you put it that the initial call uh, is to be the best version of yourself. It's a human call. It's universal. Secondarily, uh, you find different forms or expressions uh, for this. But but the fundamental driving uh, need is to conform yourself to God. Yes, I I am sure of it that God has a plan for each person. I mean, I ended up teaching at a seminary. I was a factory operator. Never in my wildest dreams did I expect that I would teach at a seminary and do the work that I'm doing. Um, I didn't even know if I could write papers or teach or, you know, so although I taught in the business school for a number of years too, but I mean, you know, uh, one has to discover and uncover by following indications sent to me by God often through other people. That's right. Here's where you should go. And then at a certain point you find what your what your greatest desire is right. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and how you can serve. Yeah. And then you, you bloom. You just, you have, it's, uh, I love this quote from Colossians 3, 23. The context is a little iffy, but Paul, St. Paul says there, um, whatever, whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, every single job, and to the younger people that are watching this, Take every job you get seriously because you will learn who you are by how you relate That's right. to that to that work. When I was a production operator, I was I tried to be the best production operator I could be, and what one finds is what John Paul speaks about is this distinction between the subjective and objective dimension of work. No matter what job you're doing, yeah. what John Paul says, no matter what the objective results are, whether it's earning you lots of money or not very much, whether you're a garbage collector, a factory operator, or a CEO, or a professor, the thing that gives work its dignity is the fact right. that the one who is doing it is a person. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the, the element of intentionality, like the little child you're, you've inculcated right. with this need and skill to put uh, the fork and the knife uh, right. in the right slot. Right. right, and so Maddie would say to me consistently throughout her early years, when I'd say, you have to clean up your room, or you have to do this, even when she was three, and I said, you have to clean out the knife and fork tray. Why, Mommy? Why? And I said, I'm not kidding, even though she was only three, because you are a subjective being, capable of acting in a planned and rational way, capable of deciding about yourself, with a tendency towards self-realization. Now, don't don't say that a little tiresome. (laughs) She did. Eventually, she said, never mind, Mom, I get it. But a a couple of years ago, she said to me, Mom, I guess I just, I think I just acted in a planned and rational way. <laughs> so that's what parents sure. need to have, that wish for their children. I mean, why, why do we know that children have to learn how to work? 
We know this. Right. It would take me two minutes to empty the knife and fork tray. Right. But we have this, n- this instinct. Yeah. We know that if our children don't learn how to work and love it, they will never be happy. You know, there's a, a great line uh, from the, uh, the English poet W.H. Auden who says, the first, the sole criterion of success in any endeavor is intensity of attention. Oh, mm. Or yeah. less pompously, love. Yes. You've got to love it and invest yeah. right. everything in right. doing it right. and doing it the best you can. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you bring up your daughter, that again emphasize that underscores the mm. dimension of relationship. Sure. You know, because becoming the best version of myself could easily become sort of a self-focused, isolated Yes, Soon, yes, you, know, you want to watch out for uh, that. My granddaughter, you know, said to her mom, my daughter-in-law, you know, I want to be a saint, so don't ask anything difficult of me today. <laughs> <laughs> she was six years old. Oh. You, know? Yeah. you know, but the fact is, you know, that's what can happen if you're becoming the best version of yourself, right. you know, on your own terms, yeah. Yeah. you know. And, right. and I think that this also brings out the idea that, I, you know, Jesus was out to become the best version of himself by making us the best versions of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, again, a shift of accent mark that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we have to recognize that really, you know, it isn't by becoming the CEO. Mm-hmm. It's by being the best person. I, you know, a friend of mine, John, has uh, this... Uh, he was the chairman of the Department of Theology at a prestigious Catholic university that was riled by politics. But before that, he was doing his doctorate at Yale uh, with a family, but he had to have a job, and he was a garbage man. Yeah. And he did such a good job, he was put in charge of the garbage men's union, you know? And he said, perfect preparation to chair a Department of Theology. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, you bloom where you're planted in relation to all of the other flowers in the pot. Sure. You know, and, and that, is, again, it, it doesn't correct, but it sort of full, fills out. Well, what, what you're describing is so perfect. Um, to be a Christian is to be a servant. Yeah. Yes. And so um, perhaps people have heard of servant leadership. It's something sort of invented by Robert Greenleaf. But but, uh, we tend to think in the West of organizations as sort of a pyramid with a guy at the top. But actually the right way to think of it is reversed, that um, all the people in the hierarchy serve those that are serving the public or the customer, right? And um, this is a very Christian understanding of, of what we're called to do. So... Uh, the, the man who's the, who's the garbage man, if he can understand his work in that way, that he's serving the common good by fulfilling this function, that it's not, uh, uh, it, every job, I want to say, is important. I mean, pornography, no. Other, there are certain things you can rule out. But when, when I'm at work, I have a task to do. And, and uh, as you say, my intention toward that work, toward my family, toward my my ancestors toward toward God will drive my understanding of how it of what it means and John Paul says when we have the right understanding of work that is when it takes on the meaning it has in the eyes of God yeah and uh, that's what we're trying to do as you say is conform ourselves to what God wants for us so to think of work as something I do on Monday through Friday and church is something I do on Sunday Right. is completely contrary yeah. to the yeah. to God's design. Yeah. For years the question that plagued me was why would it be my my business professors would say 
Miss Savage, you're arguing about the wrong thing. Truth has nothing to do with reality. You'll discover when you get into the real world, even though I was already in it, um, that uh, you can't really get ahead by doing the right thing. Right thing. Um, and I, I tested that when I got my first job as a production supervisor. For one year, I decided I would test that theory. I did the right thing. I said I told the truth to everyone. It's a longer story. But at the end of that year, I had a famous production line uh-huh. at Advanced Micro Devices in California. And I know from experience that God's design permits us to be ethical, virtuous, holy men and women, and still be successful in life. And success is not a bad thing. Paul said, St. Paul said, not money is the root of all evil. Love of money is the root of all evil. No, we have to have the right attitude, the right relationship to our work for it to have this meaning. But this vision of, of a human life fully lived is really includes Work is a fundamental dimension of human existence. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We derive meaning from work, and through this meaning, uh, we can give honor and acknowledgement to God. And we can do this with our time and our talents. I tell my students, sometimes in my management courses, uh, really, ultimately, no matter where you end up, no matter what you end up doing, what position you hold or what entrepreneurial endeavor you undertake, ultimately, you will answer to God as your supervisor. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France and Italy, and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents, our final segment here. We've been talking about faith and human works. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah. uh, Somebody uh, once said, I think it may have been Dr. Johnson, uh, who said a great many lapidary things, that industry is the enemy of melancholy. Uh, and, And I devoutly believe that. Uh, As long as you're working, it's hard to get depressed. But it's also the enemy of sin. I mean, I find that when I'm teaching, uh, I'm not even tempted uh, to sin uh, unless I teach untruth. And I try not to do that. uh, Quality control. (laughs) Uh, And uh, nothing is too demeaning uh, if you do it for God. Uh, He can take it and and complete and consecrate it for you. There's a a lovely poem, I wish I could recite all of it, by uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins about this obscure Jesuit, uh, St. Rodriguez, uh, who kept the door in Majorca. Uh, at uh, at the monastery, and nobody paid any attention to him, and yet he was a blooming saint. 
He bloomed where he planted. Mm. Uh, my own job, Scott, your job, I think we share this, uh, is not work uh, in the sense that we deplore having to do it. I look forward to Monday. Yeah. Uh, to move from Sunday to Monday, to me, is a natural segue. It's just an extension of what I'm doing on Sunday, mm -hmm. thinking about God, talking to God. Mm -hmm. uh, Wittgenstein has this great line that when you think about being truth, ground, logos, you're really praying. Yeah. So to teach is to pray. That, that's, pretty, that's pretty liberating. Yeah. And to get paid right. to pray, yeah. that's amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thanks, Regis. Scott? I want to pick up right where Regis left off because I think prayer is the central feature here. That's how we hear the call. Mm. That's how we respond to the vocation because if we're called to become saints, we're called to be more than just the best version of ourselves. We're called to become the best version of Christ that we can be. Right. You know, and it's not something that we can do on our own. So the idea of vocation to holiness is a call to do something that we can't do on our own, but we're not on our own. Yeah. Prayer, the sacraments especially, not as rituals that we perform for God so much as favors that God does for us mm -hmm. to enable us not only to do more than we can do on our own, but to become something much more than ourselves in the process. You know, and that might be a garbage man. That might be you know, a watchman at the door like Rodriguez. But whatever it is, you know, we're always going to be something more than just that function and really more than the career. Vocation brings that element of transcendence. And, and I would say especially for husbands and wives who are called to become fathers and mothers, you know, uh, that's sort of like, well, that's the natural priest. Well, this is also something that none of us can do on our own. Right. And it represents a vocation. I, I went to college for four years, triple major, then got married and figured out you know, that what matters most is marriage and family. And I didn't take a single course, and I'm grateful that I didn't because I'm not sure it would have helped. But I, I think through prayer, hard work makes us more than ourselves, makes yeah. us saints. Yeah. And your work, I think, is also a really important and valuable reminder that we need to be reminded of this every day, yeah. mm. and sometimes several times throughout the day. Right. Uh, and that's what prayer does, I think, as well. You know? So think about logos, truth, being, but do that in dialogue with he who is the truth. Yeah. 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 Amen. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Deborah. Yeah, so uh, it, it makes, I'll just follow on what's already been given, that um, we have to always remember that there is nowhere that God's reign does not hold. Mm. God, God doesn't stay behind when we cl go in the building of the work workplace. When we close the door, He's not out. He's everywhere, and so is His grace. It's like rain that's always falling, but we have our umbrellas up. So um, work work can be a form of prayer at many levels. I mean, even when I forget that I am a child of God, uh, God thank God He doesn't forget me because I would disappear, right? And so, um, uh, one of my favorite texts is uh, by Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. Mm. And I think that's the trick, right, is, is to always remember that uh, God holds me in the palm of His hand wherever I am and bears witness to what I'm doing no matter where I am. And so, um, the, the question about work and faith and so on, it turns out it's not just about ethics. It's actually about becoming holy, yeah. about, um, about discovering in myself this capacity for love, 
for service, for uh, constantly remembering to look up, um, and to not make my work into careerism or, or simply uh, acquisition, but to recognize God's, uh, God's action on me wherever I am and, and be grateful for it. So um, there's, there's so much really to this topic. I would just remind everyone that um, uh, what John Paul II says, that we have to have in mind this understanding of work for it to have the meaning it has in the eyes of God, for us to conform ourselves to God. We have to understand our work in this way. And uh, I, I agree that this needs to become more and more clearer because people persist in going to church on Sunday and work on Monday and kind of living in this gap. And it's really uh, reflected in the fragmentation we experience in our culture. So um, he's right, I think, that the work is really the key to the social vision of the church. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, uh, we have a handout here from Dr. Savage, The Eucharist and the Work of Human Hands. You can get this at faithandreason.com or for giving us a call. Um, this is a, a great um, excerpt from a, a, a talk that goes deeper into the richness of human labor. Um, the, the reality is our world is in great need of transformation uh, by Christ. And I remember thinking um, that, that there are some professions that, that would just be too, uh, too dirty. And, and for me, it was politics. And I remember thinking, uh, as I prayed and worked through with my spiritual director, that this, this call that I began to feel to serve in politics, um, and God spoke very clearly to me in prayer and said, uh, can't a politician be a saint too? And uh, the reality is we need saints, uh, fully alive Catholics, passionate Catholics in every uh, sector of society, uh, offering their work, sanctifying their place, being that priest, prophet, and king so that they can speak the truth, that they can offer their work, and that they can really truly govern and, and reorder uh, their work to Christ. And that's where we need uh, to be Christ's hands and feet. Um, and as we look forward, uh, understanding who we truly are meant to be in our vocation, uh, we know that only through prayer and understanding who we are. And that's how we give ourselves away. Vocation is about how we give ourselves away for Christ. So really dive deep into the understanding of what work truly is. And God is never done with you. Don't say you're too old. Um, 25 years in, in, in business may lead you to being a seminary professor. Who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, but I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission. We believe we're called to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. And we want you to be a part of this, possibly by getting your education uh, here uh, at Franciscan University in Steubenville or through our online program. Or come to our summer conferences to be enriched and inspired and equipped for the new evangelization. Or to travel with us on, on pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world. Um, or go to faithandreason.com. Some great materials and resources both from today and for other sources. But until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888 888- 
1-800-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.